Hello, I'm Rebecca Dabrasco, and welcome to TechStot Roadside Chat Podcast, where we dig deeper about some of TechStot's archaeological discoveries. I'm a historian for the environmental program at the Texas Department of Transportation, and I'm here to talk today about a quintessential Texas story. What do I mean by that? Well, Texas was a slave state. Before the Civil War, Texans owned slaves and used them for labor on their farms. On June 19, 1865, the news that slaves were free finally reached Texas. Every year, black communities today gather to celebrate the emancipation of slaves in Texas. So for this Juneteenth, we want to highlight an exceptional story of freedom that is featured on the website Texas Beyond History. So we're going to talk about the Ransom Williams Farmstead in southeast Travis County in Texas. Ransom Williams was a slave who was freed during emancipation and TxDOT discovered his farm during our project planning. With me today are two scholars that discovered and researched this farmstead, archaeologist and principal investigator Doug Boyd of Pruitt & Associates and Dr. Maria Franklin of the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you Thank for you. having us. So, Doug, we'll start first with you. Why were you looking for something like the Ransom Williams Farmstead in the first place? Okay, well, I really wasn't looking for the Ransom Williams Farmstead. The, the farmstead found me. Um, we got involved with this uh, in 2005. The site was actually discovered years earlier in 1981. But in 2005, archaeologist John Budd, one of the staff archaeologists with the Archaeological Studies Program at TxDOT, uh, called me up and wanted to meet me at this site and uh, to bring along uh, Terry Myers, a historian that, who was going to collaborate with us on this, this work. Uh, John had uh, known about this site, and this is in the early planning stages for the development of the toll road, which is called uh, State Highway 45 Southwest. And so we went out to visit the site and take a look at it because John knew he was going to have to uh, decide if this site was something that he needed to deal with. It was right in the construction path of the uh, proposed highway. Uh, we went and looked and uh, looked pretty, pretty good right off the bat. Um, and John knew that there was uh, some discrepancies in, the, in what was known about the history of the site. Uh, and so he uh, issued a work authorization uh, for Pruitt & Associates and Terry Myers to uh, work on doing some background history and to, uh, to test the site. So who found the site in the first place in, in the 1980s? Uh, the site was discovered uh, during a, an archaeological survey of a proposed subdivision out in that area. That subdivision never got built, and it was still uh, pristine um, farm and ranch land uh, when we walked out onto the site in 2005. So you knew that that site, or John knew that that site existed because it was recorded on a map somewhere then? And uh, there had been uh, other, other companies who had done a little bit of work with the history and uh, the archaeology, but there just wasn't that much known about it. So that's why he came to us to, to do a little bit more in-depth study. And Maria, how did you get come to get involved in this project? So I got an email from Doug in 2008. They had already decided to move forward with uh, data recovery at the site, knew the importance of the history of the site, 
and so really wanted to expand the project. And so Doug envisioned doing community outreach, public education, and oral history. And so when he emailed me, I was pretty excited because I had been thinking about doing something in the Austin area because I know that the archaeology and history of the region is really understudied. And uh, I saw this as a great opportunity to, to be involved in a research project that could contribute to the narrative of Texas history. And I was also really happy to see that um, a cultural resource management project was really putting an emphasis on um, working with descendants. So I readily agree to work with Doug. Okay. If, if I could interject here, um, I was uh, scared that uh, Maria was going to say no, that she wasn't going to be interested in the project. So uh, that was the, uh, the the best thing that happened to this project was getting her involved. Well, uh, he, he treated me to breakfast at Kirby Lane, which really closed ah, the deal. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly that's what you found out there was a really important site. So will you tell us some about what you found? Yes. Um, so that, that first work in 2005, um, especially the historical work, led Terry Myers to discover that the farm property had been purchased in 1871 by uh, an African-American named Ransom Williams. And her research led us to, to believe, it didn't confirm at that point, but led us to believe that he was a former slave uh, and that he uh, had raised enough money to buy the farmstead in 1871 and that he lived on the farmstead with Sarah, uh, his wife, and family. Um, and so at this point, when we recognized it was an African-American farmstead, the interest level went up because we've done a lot of archaeology on farmsteads all over Texas for many, many years, but not a lot on African-American farmsteads. So we, we were immediately excited. Then we went out in 2007 and 2008 and did testing. And this is for um, what we call the National Register of Historic Places Significance and State Antiquities Landmark Significance. So we went out, dug some, some excavation units, uh, found some artifacts around the house area. We, we had a, the chimney fall from the rock chimney was very obvious. Uh, we found enough to suggest that the house area was intact. And we saw these giant rock walls built all over the place and other features that were of interest. So at that point, we recommended that the site um, did meet the criteria for eligibility for National Register and State Antiquities Landmark. The Texas Historical Commission and Texas Department of Transportation agreed, and that kicked it into a whole other level of uh, going out and doing the data recovery before the road work would come in and impact the site. And when you say data recovery, that's what we typically think of as an archaeology dig, right? When you have, you're out there and everyone's got the shovels and you're, you're moving dirt around and stuff. Yes, very much so. When, when we do a testing level, oftentimes where they're just there for a few days, we're just scratching the surface of the archival records. But when we go into a data recovery, uh, it's pretty in-depth. And we were there for uh, the entire summer of 2009, um, and which happened to be the one of the hottest summers on record in, in Austin, um, which we, the, the folks who were there all the time in the field, uh, Jenny McWilliams and, and Aaron Normant and, and some of our project archaeologists and some of Maria Franklin students, they can they can attest to the fact of uh, how hot it was. Um, but, but that's very typical to spend a long time at one place and study it intensively during data recovery. So you, when you reference the homestead, there weren't any buildings really left out there, right? No, just ruins. What was the most unusual archaeological find? 
in your opinion, out there? Two, I'm going to talk about two things. One is a set of artifacts, and then I'll focus in on one particular artifact. The, the set of artifacts that I think was most um, unusual and, and interesting were all of the horse-related items. Um, because of the archival records, we knew that Ransom Williams had owned a lot of horses even before he was paying taxes on owning horses even before he purchased the land in 1871. And he owns those horses when he's on the land, but then his horse numbers are dropping down over a few years. And we think that he uh, had been, uh, when he was a slave for the Bunton family at the Mountain Home Plantation near Buda, Texas, we think that he worked with horses. The Buntons were famous for raising racehorses and, and good uh, stock horses. And we think he was one of the, the people who took care of those horses. And that gave him a, a, a lot of knowledge and skills uh, and somehow he ended up owning a number of horses, and I think over time he sold some of his horses to pay for his land. Uh, but we found a lot of horse artifacts, bridle bits, saddle parts, buckles off of harnesses, uh, but the one artifact that stands out in my mind is we found a very ornate letter R, about three and a half inches tall, uh, as big iron letter. It had been broken off of a brand and we found in the uh, 1872 Travis County Registry of Marks and Brands, we found the, the letters R and A had been issued to Ransom Williams for his personal brand on his livestock. Uh, we, we think that uh, he didn't get RW because somebody else already had been issued that, but uh, this particular uh, item was uh, the R that had been on his cattle brand, and we found it right in the, the house area which was pretty exciting, and it matched, it matched the script letters in the handwritten document. Wow, that's really interesting to me how archive work and you know, looking at documents, how that can also inform what you actually find as remains in the field from someone's house. So Maria, how common was it for a former enslaved person to buy land in Texas and have a farm? Uh, it was not common. There were about 25% of African Americans around the era, Reconstruction era who managed to purchase their own land, which is actually a higher rate than the South in general. I think land ownership among blacks peaks around the 1900 or so, and then it starts to decline. But we also have to keep in mind, despite these many successes of uh, black landowners, that a lot of the land that they purchased was the worst land for agriculture. It was very isolated. Uh, the Williams Farmstead, Doug can attest to this, was very, very rocky, had thin soils. Um, they, would have, they would have struggled to make a living off of just farming alone. So it was somewhat uncommon, but not unheard of for blacks to purchase land after emancipation. Okay, so what what did the archaeology out there indicate other activities at the farmstead besides this horse raising? Yeah, and one of the um, one of the tasks that we um, undertook when we started was a comprehensive landscape analysis. We're talking about a forty five acre tract of land that he owned. And so we combed across every inch of the property very carefully, and we uh, mapped everything in detail. And what we found was uh, not just 
his, his house. We know he had a, a rock chimney. Uh, the archaeology told us that he probably built a log cabin. We had the foundation stones in place. We could tell the footprint of that. Uh, in, inside the house, he had a potato cellar that would have been below the floor of uh, his house, uh, and he probably would have stored uh, food in it, like sweet potatoes and things that could be preserved and used over the winter. Um, but we also found a series of rock walls uh, all over the property going different directions. Some were property boundaries. Uh, others were clearly dividing uh, the sloping uplands that he left wooded uh, from the flat areas that he turned into farmland. We found a corral complex where he kept his livestock uh, and he had created and, and dug a, a livestock pond right in this corral complex. And he had very intentionally, uh, using his knowledge of the landscape and livestock, he had intentionally laid out his farm in a, in a very uh, thoughtful pattern. His house was close enough that he could see his corral and his pond area where his livestock would be a lot of the time and keep an eye on things. So we learned that, that Ransom Williams was a, was a knowledgeable uh, man coming out and making the best uh, on the, uh, what is essentially hard scrabble farmland. Um, and so that I think was one of the most important things that, that we learned about this. What kind of things did he plant in the fields? What did he grow? The archival record shows that, like many of his neighbors, he was growing a little bit of cotton, um, a lot of corn. Uh, probably the corn was he was using for feeding his horses and, and cattle on t at times, uh, and, and some other crops, but, but cotton and corn were the main things. But he only had about 20, 18 to 20 acres that was really farmable, so not a, not a big uh, area for farming. So that probably one of the reasons why this land then was so available to him because none of the white people in that area wanted to farm it because it wasn't very large? Well, actually, um, this land was being filled in rapidly at the time Ransom Williams bought his, his land. It had just been subdivided and in the 1870s and was being sold off. And Ransom moved in and all of his neighbors were white all around him. So he was surrounded by farmers on the same kind of land. Uh, most of them uh, um, not, not poor farmers, but they weren't, certainly weren't the wealthy farmers who owned the, the good bottom land uh, along the, the Colorado River. Um, so he was uh, surrounded by uh, all of his white neighbors, but Terry Myers did an analysis of the, what we call ad valorem tax data, which is the, the production that you are taxed on when you're a, a farm and ranch operator. And uh, she compared that with all of uh, Ran Ransom's production with all of his neighbors, and he was uh, very, very run-of-the-mill standard, uh, fell right in the middle in terms of his economics, uh, but he was doing uh, as, as well as could be expected. He, he was hanging in there with all the rest of them. Okay. So, Doug, you've mentioned, you know, how you found a lot of this work with your archaeology and then with Terry Myers, all of her research that she's done in the archives and the paper records. So, Maria, could you tell us a little bit why would a project like this want to find descendants from people at the site and talk with them or descendants from the neighbors at this site? Right. So, uh, first, let me clarify, when we talk, when we say descendants within the context of this project and in African-American archaeology more broadly, we, we do mean direct descendants. And, and we did interview three direct descendants of Ransom and Sarah Williams. But we also mean descendants in terms of people who have 
connections, historical um, ties, a deep sense of investment of a particular research um, and area. And so we also interviewed people who were descendants, part of the descendant community in areas around uh, uh, the Ransom and Sarah Williams site. So we interviewed 27 people in all. Most of them were African-Americans. Most of them were also over the age of 70. So we're talking about people whose parents would have been contemporaries of the Williams um, couple. Uh, the reason why we wanted to reach out to people is because we thought it was important to do research, not just in terms of pure science research, but to uh, make it more relevant to the public. Um, this kind of archaeology has increased exponentially in the past few decades. Uh, we realize that people have a, a vested interest in the kinds of uh, research that archaeologists conduct. And this was a way in which to open up lines of communication with the public, with people who um, care about this history, to get different kinds of perspectives about the past and that as we, that, you know, we as researchers have about that past, and to talk about people who actually lived through segregation and um, who lived during a time when most people farmed in this area. Uh, these are the people who, who experienced all of this. And so we, we knew that we were going to learn a lot from uh, the oral histories, and we certainly did. That's really interesting, especially that... Um you were able to find direct descendants of Ransom and Sarah Williams that are still here in the Austin area. Yeah, and that was thanks to uh, Terry Myers, the project historian. It took her two years, but she, she finally located um, the widow of Will Williams, who was uh, Sarah and, and uh, Ransom's eldest child. He had married a woman named Clara Franklin, and they moved from Creedmoor to Austin, in, to East Austin, in 1930, I believe and had a number of kids, and their kids had kids. And so, yeah, three great-granddaughters, Corrine Harris, Jewel Andrews, and Larice Johnson were born and raised in East Austin. They're still living there right now. Wow, what, is some of the, what are some of the stories you learned from the people that you spoke with? Well, people that we spoke with, when we were um, talking to them and interviewing them, they were mostly interested in talking about their families, the strong-knit, close-knit communities that they grew up in, how much love and support they received as kids and as young adults, um, the strong work ethic that they learned from their parents. They talked about the importance of religion and church, uh, going to school, owning their own homes, and keeping the land that their ancestors had, you know, struggled to, to purchase. So, uh, you know, there were a number of different things that we talked about. We also asked about racism. Obviously, a lot of these folks, since they were older, uh, were raised during a time of deep-seated uh, segregation here in Texas. And so, uh, you know, some of the stories that we heard were someone talking about, for example, being a young child and their grandmother ex and telling them that if a, a white person does something mean to you or says something mean to you, you have to be a good Christian and turn the other cheek, which is, you know, that's a very difficult lesson to have to teach it to a very young kid. Um, but it also speaks to the precarious nature of black lives during that period. I mean, you could look at somebody the wrong way and, and um, your life could be in danger. Uh, Austin was segregated, even though these folks were living in the you know, rural communities, they often went to Austin to shop and to go to the movies. Uh, but they, they could go in and buy merchandise, for example, at a department store, but they couldn't try clothes on. Right, so these everyday sorts of discrimination that people faced. One woman's mother worked as a domestic servant in Buda for white families. 
and she had no one to watch her kids, so she'd bring the kids along. They'd have to sit in the yard, and she'd have to go in the back door to clean other people's houses. So there were a lot of, um, you know, very sorrowful stories that, that people told us that were important to us telling this greater narrative of black history here in Texas. Where did a lot of these interviews live? Were they interviewees live? Were they still in the rural or formerly rural parts of around Austin, or were they a lot of them in East Austin? Well, so people move around, right? I mean, people right. have always moved around. So we interviewed people from four different communities, largely. Some grew up here, in, uh, grew up in Travis County in Manchac, within a couple of miles of Bear Creek, which is where the Williams Farmstead is located. Some grew up in East Austin, just like I mentioned, the Williams descendants. Uh, some also grew up in Antioch Colony and the Prairie. Now, Antioch Colony was a freedman settlement. It was established right after emancipation by uh, freedmen, who a number of them were born in the Upper South, like Tennessee, uh, came down to Texas with their white slave owners, and after emancipation managed to purchase property outside of uh, uh, Buda um, in, in Hayes County. So... But as, you know, as farming became a really difficult life for a lot of people, they migrated out, and most of them left and went to cities to find better-paying jobs. So a number of the people that we interviewed, even though they might have been raised in Antioch, were living in East Austin, Phoenix, San Antonio, Dallas, and so forth. Was there anything that you learned about where they were on the farm where they were raised that maybe informed what Doug found as the archaeology out there? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm an archaeologist as well. So um, doing, uh, I understand the challenges. When you walk out onto a site, you're getting little bits of fragments of stuff. I mean, you hardly ever find a whole piece of anything. And of right. course, you know, the house has fallen in. And you're basically, as an archaeologist, your job is to take those remnants of the past and say something about the social life, the everyday lives of the people who lived at that site, which is a very difficult thing to do when you don't have people walking around the site doing the things that they did in the past. So the oral histories are really, you know, played an important role in bringing you know, bridging people, people's behaviors and actions with the stuff, the material culture, the landscapes, the structures, and so forth. So when I was talking to people, I did ask, you know, what kinds of things did you do on the farm? But I paid very close attention to the kinds of objects that people talked about using, where they did those things, and who they did them with, right? Who was responsible for different kinds of chores? So in relating this information back to Doug and so forth, we'd have conversations about, okay, you know, the laundry was done in the yard. They used these large iron pots, for example. They made their own lye soap. Women laundered in the in the in the yard. Um, so that kind of gives us a sense of like, okay, where are activities taking place? But those big pots were also used for uh, boiling food, like hominy, um, or for making uh, pig cracklings out of the pig skins. And so you get an, a sense that you know, if you find something at a site, the kinds of multiple roles that it might have had in the past, right? So it starts to kind of help us get, you know, in, interpret the relationship between people and things. Um, that's what, you know, I mean, that was the main reason why we did the oral histories. Again, we wanted to be inclusive and to try to write uh, a, a broader history of Texas from different perspectives, including from people who are not researchers, but it also obviously helped to breathe life into the, the archaeological research that we were doing as well. I can add to that just a little bit, and, and I was really amazed at the continuity between what we were seeing in 19th century archaeology at the Ransom and Sarah Williams farmstead 
and the oral histories from people who were growing up in the 30s and 40s in that area. And for example, um, Ransom Williams didn't have a well on his property and he didn't have a, a cistern. It was just, it was too rocky, it was solid limestone. So his answer to the water solution was use a lot of uh, wooden barrels. And we found these uh, metal barrel bands from the wooden barrels all over the place. Well, in Maria's oral histories, the people at Antioch uh, Colony would, um, they, they also, very few of them had any access to a well or cistern, so they would go down in a wagon to the spring and load up water barrels and bring them to the community and sell them for a quarter of a barrel or something. And so their, their lifestyles had not changed that much, uh, even though it was many, many years later, but the, they were still the same uh, farming and ranching kind of lifestyle. Wow, so I guess, you know, what works for one time, you know, why why fix what's not broken, right? Whatever that saying is. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix, fix it. it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think people would have preferred not to have to haul water. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But who, yeah. Could have, who could afford to dig a, dig a well? Exactly, through <laughs> solid rock, right? So. So what... Why did the why did the Williams leave their farmstead? How did it become an archaeology site as opposed to a still working living farm? Well, historically, um, we know that they lived there for about thirty years, and that Ransom Williams uh, passed away in nineteen oh one, and that's kind of what set the the changes in motion. I believe uh, at the same year. Uh, Ransom's oldest son, Will, got married and moved off to the Creedmoor area. Um, and Sarah and the other kids uh, who were there uh, probably found it difficult to keep the farm going. And uh, this is a time when lots of rural African-Americans are moving into urban areas, uh, part of, of the greater picture, the great migration uh, to, to the north and to urban areas. Um, and they chose to, um, to move off in 1905 and go to East Austin, and they sold part of their farm that year. They continued to own some of the land for many years, uh, but in, in that 1905, they sold uh, half of their farm, and they sold it to uh, D.W. Labinsky, uh, who was one of their white neighbors for more than 30 years. And, and then they chose to, to move on and uh, where job opportunities were better and, and maybe life was a little easier. So I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in visiting a site like Ransom Williams or um, the site itself. What, what can they do if they're interested in more information about this? Well, one thing they can do is go to the Texas Historical Commission website, and there are a number of um, historical sites that are operated by the Texas Historical Commission all across the state, and there's a lot of them that are related to plantations and, and post-emancipation occupations. Um, and unfortunately, the, the Ransom and Sarah Williams farmstead is uh, a site that was uh, in, the, in the way of progress, and I think as we speak, they're building the toll road out in there, and, and uh, most of that site will be gone. Uh, but they, they can certainly go to the Texas Beyond History website, and we, um, Maria Franklin, um, uh, one of our students, Nidra Lee, uh, all of the Pruitt and Associates team, we all collaborated and put together a fairly elaborate exhibit on the Ransom and Sarah Williams farmstead, and that's all available online. Um, as part of that, we developed, we had a couple of uh, uh, expert uh, teacher, uh, teachers in curriculum development put together lesson plans for fourth and seventh grade teachers, uh, and those have been very well received, and they are um, uh, all about uh, 
uh, African-American life after slavery. Um, and I, I know one teacher, a um, um, woman named Deborah Gray, who's a teacher in the Garland School District, and the year after we put those uh, online, she picked them up and adapted them for her entire seventh grade uh, school curriculum, um, and, and, and they're, they're geared towards the, uh, the state requirements, so she was able to implement them in mathematics, social studies, science, and language arts. So uh, th those curriculum are out there for teachers to use, and it tells a, a story that you're not going to find in any of the history books. They're, we haven't caught up with that yet. So this is an important story that, that needs to be told, uh, and so I hope people will go check out the uh, Texas Beyond History website and take a look at it. There are also links, if they're interested, to um, the uh, two-volume archaeology report set and to the two-volume set on the oral history that uh, Dr. Franklin put together. And those are absolutely amazing, uh, detailed uh, stories and, and interpretation of, of the oral history and archaeology. I visited that website, Texas Beyond History, right before we sat down to talk today. And one of the things that was really interesting to me were the video clips about some of the oral histories and the oral interviews that were on there so we could listen to some of the people that you spoke with. Um, and then Doug just mentioned that the interviews are published, right, in a two-volume yes, book. Where else, what, what else did you do with those interviews? So we, so interviewees, People wanted their stories to be shared. They wanted them to be archived, and they really wanted the younger generation to understand what the African-American story was uh, you know, prior to the Civil Rights Movement. So it was important for us to, to try and, and meet those goals for them. So one of the things that we did was to reach out to the, the uh, Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas, and that's where all the digital recordings, all the records that I collected, the historic photos and so forth, have been archived there. So people, anybody can go in there and, and use those resources. What about the archeology span artifacts and things that you found, where are those? Uh, all of the artifacts have been curated at a state-certified repository, and uh, in this case, it is the Texas Archaeological Research Laboratory that is uh, run by the University of Texas. So it's out at the J.J. Pickle Research Campus. Uh, the, the collections are all there, uh, and they regularly loan collections out for, for displays. Um, and the um, museum, the Carver Museum over in East Austin, we've talked about trying to get a, a display going over there and, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that we did do for the um, project, we had an artist do a couple of reconstruction paintings that are really, really nice. Uh, there's a reconstruction of the farm and outside view of the cabin and some of the surrounding landscape. And then there's an interior cabin view. And those paintings were donated to the Carver Museum and are on display uh, over there in East Austin and can, can be seen. Um, so we, we encourage people to, to look at the reports and, and go find that information. And Well, great. Is there anything else either one of you would like to share with our listeners today about this really fascinating site? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll, I'll throw out one little story um, because archaeologists are so uh, into the material culture, the artifacts that we find. Um, and one of the sets of artifacts that we found is we would find these bits and pieces of 
uh, broken uh, whiteware with a transfer printed design on them. And uh, then we, we would find sections of a, a cup or, or uh, a quarter of a plate. But we kept seeing this pattern reoccurring over and over. And several of them had the, uh, what we call the maker's marks uh, stamped on the bottom. And these were all made by the uh, Alfred Meakin Company out of England, uh, which was typical for the time period. A lot of English ceramics were being brought in uh, in the late um, 1800s. And these, the mark on the back was specific to the years 1875 to 1897. And from this, we were able to infer that this wasn't uh, happenstance, that this was probably a set of, of matching dishes that Sarah Williams uh, purchased at some point. Um, and what, what amazed us uh, is we had kind of gone in, and, and, and I'm, I'm certainly going to admit naively from my perspective, thinking that you know, this was going to be a real uh, poor assemblage and that there wasn't going to be a lot of uh, fancy things, and, and uh, we were wrong. I mean, there was, there was uh, music items, uh, harmonicas and shoes harps, and, and this set of dishes uh, was, was not the, the cheap stuff. This was, would have been a little more expensive. And I can imagine that Sarah Williams, uh, when she had uh, raised enough money to, to buy that fancy set of dishes, uh, had a sense of pride in, in acquiring those and, and helping make her family's life better. And uh, so th those are the kind of stories, I think, that are really important that come out of a place like the Williams Farmstead. Where would she have bought those dishes? In Austin? <sighs> Probably Certainly through, not off Amazon. <laughs> probably through a mail order catalog. Oh, okay. Um, at, the, at the time, in the late 1800s, uh, Sears and Montgomery Ward uh, catalogs were available. Um, you, could, you could go uh, and, and find a catalog, which usually were in the, the general stores. They would have catalogs, and you could order them through them. And some of the stores, some of the larger stores in the area, and they may have traveled to Austin on occasion to go shopping. And some of those larger stores may have kept uh, full sets of, of dishes and, and had them for purchase. Or they could have ordered it through the catalog. We, we don't know for sure. Okay. But I did uh, find in some of the period Sears catalogs the uh, Meekin Company was one of the companies. Uh, couldn't find the exact pattern for sale, but the, the Meekin Company had a lot of stuff for sale through the catalogs. Okay. So I will follow up with that. He mentioned Sarah Williams. Uh, one of the things that sticks out in my mind in terms of the oral history interviews was the sacrifices that African-American women made um, during that time period. These were women who although they might have been listed in the census as keeps house, we're talking about women who were responsible for a number of household-related chores. They also had to raise the kids. They were the primary caretakers of the young, and we're talking big families here. Most of the people that we interviewed had seven to 10 kids on average. Some had up as upwards of 16 children at home. These were women who also had to go out and pick cotton, right? And then a number of them also worked as domestic servants for white families. So when you think about someone like Sarah Williams, you know, she might have been at home taking care of the kids, but think about all the other labor that she produced for her families and her community. So uh, that was something that was very telling to me. And then um, more broadly, the Williams family, in terms of church and school, since this was, we're talking about, you know, this was a segregated Texas, they had to find uh, other institutions outside of that white community that they lived within to attend because they were black. Uh, one of the things that the freedmen in Manchac, that area, and also in Antioch Colony did right after emancipation were to build schools. They built schools, they understood the importance of education. And so the Williams kids were all literate. 
at Antioch Colony, that first generation of settlers, none of them could read or write. By the second generation, all of their kids could read and write. So that speaks to, you know, uh, a lot of mobilizing of, of labor, resources, um, the deep aspirations that people had for their children to ensure that the kids had a better future for themselves. Um, it was a really, uh, th this has been a, 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 a tremendous learning experience, I think, for all of us who were involved with the project. I'm glad you mentioned something about education because one of the things I found really interesting that came out in those oral histories was the fact that there was no high school for African Americans in the rural areas where a lot of your interviewees grew up. And if they wanted to get education past the seventh grade, they had to come into Austin, into East Austin, and attend Anderson High School, which was the black high school in Austin. And a lot of them did. The family sacrificed and, and brought them in to the, to the city to get this education, but um, how much of it was still a struggle and just not provided as a part of a public school in rural Texas in the early 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the people that we interviewed, Marcus Pickard, his father was the head of the science department at Anderson High School. Now, the Pickards lived out in Manchac, out close to the Williams site. And every day, the father would pick up the neighborhood kids and drive them into East Austin so they could attend high school. Because they didn't have buses back then either no, for of, that. Nope, right. they did not. Um, on a similar vein, I'd like to mention one of the uh, little spin-off studies that we did as part of this. Uh, one of uh, Maria Franklin's students named Nidra Lee, uh, she worked out on the site all of the summer of uh, 2009 with us, uh, and then she took on uh, analysis of some Ransom Williams material culture for a PhD dissertation. But for Pruitt and Associates, we asked her to uh, take a look at the African-American newspapers that were being published uh, and that were available in Austin archives. And she did a very systematic look at the papers published between 1871 and uh, about 1907. And she quantified uh, all of the advertisements, what, what material culture was being advertised to them, what products. Uh, she quantified the articles and the editorials and the subjects that were being talked about. And all of the things that Maria saw in her oral history were, were reinforced in those newspapers, and especially the education. And beginning with the earliest articles we could find, uh, the African-American newspapers were uh, stressing the importance of getting an education, learning to read and write, and, and that was your key to success. And um, so that, that chapter in our report, uh, I think, added a real nice um, uh, perspective that, that we haven't seen with other archaeological sites. It helps really put the, uh, their lives in the Jim Crow era into a, a bigger perspective. And, and the things that they would have been talking about, even though Ransom Williams couldn't read, he certainly, his kids could, and he was getting all that news. And I can imagine them sitting around talking about uh, when a lynching happened in some town far away, but, but not that far away. So uh, these were things that were on their mind. So you said the newspapers that um, were found in Austin archives, but they weren't all published in Austin, right? Were they published across the state, these African-American newspapers? or Most of them were published in, in Austin. Oh, okay. Uh, and um, Jacob Fontaine was one of the... Uh, 
publishers, and uh, I apologize, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the newspaper at the time, uh, but he was a, a prominent man in, in Austin, uh, is buried out in the uh, uh, Oakwood Cemetery, um, but uh, he, uh, he ran that paper for many, many years, and uh, the, the paper uh, in Austin really is, it, it was covering rural uh, events, they were covering national events, uh, they were covering world events. So they were getting a well-rounded uh, news from, from all different angles. Uh, they, were, they were covering church events, they were covering community events, and so this would have been uh, the papers that, that Ransom and Sarah would have been wanting to get. They, they might not have gotten them when they were fresh off the print, they might have been a week or two old by the time they got them, but they were certainly getting that news and, and uh, keeping up with things. Uh, one, of the, uh, one or two of the items that we found um, in the farmstead were commemorative items. Uh, commemorating uh, American events and things. And so these were, were items that were probably purchased by the Williams family um, because they were aware of, of current events and, and keeping up with things. Well, Doug and Maria, thank you both so much for sharing your expertise with us today about this um, archaeological site and the history and the story of Ransom and Sarah Williams and their family and their community. Um, I hope our listeners choose to learn more about the Ransom Williams Farmstead by visiting texasbeyondhistory.net. You can learn more about these African-American newspapers published in Austin, see clips of interviews, see the um, reconstructed painting of the Farmstead Access Educational Curriculum, and it's just, it is a really robust and well-done site that talks a lot about Texas a portion of Texas history that isn't necessarily widely known. On behalf of TechThought, I would like to thank you all of our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy TechThought Roadside Chat and want to show your support, please review us on iTunes. You can also learn more about TechThought Beyond the Road by visiting our website at techthought.gov and searching keyword archaeology. Have a great day.